You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Episode 9 of the second series of The Core Curriculum, the show where we, where we read slowly the books in Columbia University's Core Curriculum Great Books program. If for some reason this is the first episode you're listening to, pause right now, go back, and listen to the first eight episodes in this series. I promise we'll wait for you. He pauses dramatically. Which is the best way to pause? It is. And since there's another voice on the line join, um, joining me today is Charles Hackney. Charles Hackney grew up in Alaska, completed his schooling in Oregon and New York before moving to Canada. He currently serves as Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Karenport, Saskatchewan, where he also lives with his wife and three kids. He co-hosts the Book of Nature podcast, also part of the Christian Humanist Network, and is the author of the book, Martial Virtues. Charles, how are things today? Uh, doing good. I'm enjoying a nice Saturday today and um, you know, uh, watching the, um, the Paris Judo Grand Slam uh, Championship, so uh, having a good judo day. That's good, and since I haven't introduced myself today, I am Jay Eldred frequent contributor to Sectarian Review, and sometimes guest hosting on the Christian Feminist Podcast and Christian Humanist Profiles. I live in New Bern, North Carolina with my wife, Crystal, and I've taught high school history there for the last 11 years. Um, in terms of my own endeavors today, I've been training for my sixth marathon, and that's about it. So without any further ado... I suppose we'll get right into book nine of Plato's Republic. Which means we're talking today about tyrants. Books one through eight of the Republic have set up the idea of the ideal philosopher king. Now in book nine, we get a deeper look at the opposite, the tyrant. Attempting to evaluate man's psyche and soul, by the end of book nine, Socrates, through Plato, concludes that only the philosophical life can bring true pleasure and is thus the only life worthy of true consideration. Well, I guess we should also start with defining our terms. So what is a tyrant? Well, in this case, um, uh, so, so Plato or, or Socrates, I'm not sure which way we're doing this here, but I, Socrates I through Plato. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Socrates is drawing a parallel between uh, the makeup of a society and the psychological character of a person. Uh, and so a tyrannical person uh, is someone whose psychological makeup will be analogous uh, to the political structure of a tyrannical society. Uh, while a tyrannical society is a society that is entirely enslaved to the whims of the single autocratic uh, figure, uh, the tyrannical soul uh, is entirely enslaved uh, to the lower nature and the uh, animal um, desires. Uh, 
and is described by, uh, by Socrates as a, a very miserable type of person. Very much so. I think he even gets into um, some math in there talking about just how much better a, a philosophical man is than a tyrant. But before we get there, um, he also says that tyrants are like their city. And I know that this discussion question came up, are men really like their city? You know, we might ask, are cities like the men who inhabit them, or are the men who inhabit them like the city because of where they live? My gut reaction was to say that men aren't necessarily like their city. In other words, the city is the way it is because of the men who live there, and not vice versa. But, um, Charles, you had a different idea, or you had some other scholarship to bring into that? I do, yes. Uh, I... I would sort of lean a little bit more toward the other side. And, you know, this is, I guess, you know, this is what you get when you talk to a social psychologist. I'm going to <laughs> emphasize the impact of the environment on individual thought, feeling, and behavior. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I am perfectly okay with the idea that growing up within a particular, um, a, a particular, I don't know, cultural, um, you know, cultural context uh, will shape uh, individual development. That there is a, a little bit of a research uh, come out of the uh, the personality psychology camp, uh, looking at connections between geography and personality, and uh, so there have been a lot of findings, some very interesting things. Um, uh, most of it using the five factor model, uh, and so any of you who have not taken uh, intro psych, especially intro psych with me. Uh, the uh, the five factor model is the current dominant approach within personality psychology, and uh, we define personality as uh, someone's you know, having relatively higher or lower scores on five different uh, variables: uh, extroversion versus introversion, uh, neuroticism, uh, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and openness. And uh, there have been some interesting things found. So, for example. Uh, Extroverts are more likely to live in coastal regions, while introverts tend to prefer mountains. Okay, that's uh, so, that's yeah. a, that's pretty true. I am uh, I consider myself an introvert, and I would prefer the mountains. Unfortunately, I am, but but fifteen minutes from the coast. So, Anecdo yeah, anec an anecdotally, that's true. Yeah, I'm a, I'm more of an introvert myself, and I. Uh, uh, I once got turned down for a faculty position in California because apparently I'm not California enough. Did, uh, did they happen to, to say what that means? <laughs> I don't. Well, they did say that the, they describe themselves as a very West Coast California type of institution. And I'm not sure if, if that meant, you know, uh, a certain allergy to structure or, you know, the, the fact that or they, maybe they didn't like the fact that I wear a tie or or mm. something. Whatever it is, uh, apparently they did not think that uh, I vibed with their groove or whatever. Um, <coughs> so, yeah, I do like the beach, though. Beaches are nice. Uh, yeah. So uh, one particular uh, study that I came across looked at 51 different countries and used you know, survey data from uh, all these different countries and... Uh, uh, rank ordered these countries along the five-factor model. I'm not going to dive too much into this. It's too much of a rabbit trail getting us away from Plato. But uh, um, most extroverted country uh, was Northern Ireland. Um, now, this one I found interesting. Brazilians most neurotic. Hmm. 
with yeah yeah that's not what I would have predicted my eh, stereotype my stereotype of someone who lives in Brazil is probably you know someone who likes you know partying in Reno or, or Rio or something like that I don't know about Reno I don't know how many Brazilians make it to Nevada but Rio um, but yeah uh, apparently you know highest neuroticism scores in Brazil uh, they they distinguished so just like they distinguished between Northern Irish and Southern Irish, they also distinguished between German Swiss and French Swiss, and the German Swiss uh, were both uh, the most agreeable and also highest openness scores. Uh, German Swiss and Filipinos tied for most conscientious. So yeah, there there's some very interesting patterns, but the real fun stuff gets when we try to figure out why. And Which is there's always lots a good of possibility. Question. Oh yeah, and there it gets a lot more complicated than simply uh, you know uh, you talking about um, uh, you know communities being shaped by the people and me talking about people being shaped by the communities. Right. Because it's both, and the, uh, so there's uh, a lot of hypotheses. I mean, one is you know if you know people being shaped by the community uh, would be you know, social pressure. Uh, if you're surrounded by cheerful extroverts, they're always pressuring you to be more cheerful and more extroverted. Uh, so there's going to be social rewards and punishments attached with uh, these kinds of behaviors. And so it, it will you know, generally push people in one direction or another. Uh, but um, mobility and migration uh, also play into this. There's a self-selection factor. So people are more likely to... Uh, move to places and stay there where they feel comfortable, which usually uh, would mean that there's uh, more resonance uh, between themselves and their neighbors in terms of their general outlook on life and overall disposition. So I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have liked uh, that Southern California uh, lifestyle either. Yeah, maybe uh, not. <laughs> Yeah. So in certain senses, people are kind of like their cities. There is some psychology there. Right, but, I mean, we all know people that, when we get down on the individual level, are nothing like the, the group that they inhabit. Oh, yeah, this is all aggregate stuff. This is all, uh, you know, group averages. So I guess we might need to look a little bit further to maybe understand where a tyrant comes from. You know, because it, it, certainly it can't just be just be the city. You know, th th that would, that would right. veer into, I mean, well, you're the... You have more experience in this than I do, but wouldn't that be more along the lines of behavioral psychology? Uh, well, uh, what uh, what Plato does, uh, and I seem to be bouncing back and forth between this two, what Plato says, what Socrates says, um, what <laughs> what the Republic says, what we find in the Republic, uh, is uh, actually laying the blame on uh, developmental factors and uh, family of origin and the influence of bad peers. Right. That, that's so, where I was hoping uh, we'd head with nine, that. Yeah, in book nine, we pick up um, uh, Socrates in the middle of a description of uh, where different uh, these character types come from. And it's, gen it's a story of uh, psychological degeneration that we pick up here. Uh, so uh, the you know, apparently the... the uh, someone with a democratic uh, 
personality is likely to raise uh, a child who will have an oligarchic personality and then the child of the oligarchic personality and rebelling against the authority of the parents uh, will fall in with bad character and the bad character will uh, incur, you know, the, or sorry, uh, bad companions. That's the word I should have used mm-hmm. there. Uh, so these, and these, so these bad companions will encourage the child uh, to squander the family wealth on wine, women, and song uh, and, you know, defeating the base uh, instincts. And... Uh, Next thing you know, this uh, person has you know basically devolved into uh, sort of looking like a uh, juvenile delinquent, yeah, petty criminal, oh. and the only possibility for anything resembling status is if uh, this uh, person with the tyrannical character is sufficiently competent uh, to get to the top of the heaps of of the uh, the, the, the the criminal class or whatever, uh, and achieve some sort of position of power. You know, Socrates talks about maybe going into mercenary life or becoming a pickpocket or something like that. So, yeah. Right. In my translation, which I'm using Bloom's translation, I found it interesting that um, they call these small evil deeds. And then it's things like home home breaking and stealing, uh, slavery, false witness, bribes, things like that, things that might not necessarily be considered small today. But I guess, you know, eventually if our, you know, oddly competent petty criminal who's escalating to major crimes, uh, you know, ends up in some sort of position of power, maybe even taking over a city, um, picking like, I'm thinking like a, you know, some sort of Lex Luthor character or uh, something like that. Uh, But... Okay. Yeah. uh, I guess tyrannizing and destroying an entire city counts as a bigger and worse crime uh, than committing individual crimes or something like that. I'm, I'm not quite sure what to think about that. Yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, it goes know. back you, to that idea. You know, one, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. I hate to bring that into it. <laughs> so, yeah, something like that. So um, having achieved power, I also found it interesting how he keeps power. And we kind of alluded to this already, but... Um, Socrates and or Plato describe the circle of advisors or the circle of friends that he keeps around him. And in my translation, uh, he calls them flatterers, ready to serve them in anything, or if they have need of anything from anyone, they themselves cringe and dare to assume any posture, acting as though they belonged to him, but when they have succeeded, they become quite alien. In other words, he surrounds himself with people that will support his ideas, and when they disagree, he they get kicked to the curb yes that's right well i mean the uh, the tyrant is uh concerned with the self uh and uh, one of the interesting uh connections uh between uh this tyrannical person and the misery that uh, apparently accompanies the tyrannical character is uh the descent into paranoia right uh, that uh that goes on here, so uh, which at, which at least has historic precedent in it. Oh, certainly. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah, as soon oh, as who was it? Was it was it Stalin? I think it was Stalin that ended up barricading himself in the Kremlin at the end of his life. I now I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I don't remember that either. But certainly would not surprise me. I mean, um, 
Yeah, we do have historical precedent for this all over the all over the place. I was listening to uh, a, a history podcast uh, a little while ago, so that's so so Alexander the Great is on my mind uh, because okay. that's what I was. And you know, when people talk about Alexander the Great, they're usually you know they think like you know Gordian knot and conquering the world and stuff like mm. that. But um, and 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 the fact that he died young. I mean, who knows what would have happened if he had not died. Uh, quite so young, but even as he was toward the end of his reign, he's doing purges left and right because right. he had, I mean, he'd gone full bore paranoid, seeing conspiracies and plots everywhere. Um, so, yeah, uh, pl- uh, and, Socrates was likely depressed as well. That too. Uh, and uh, apparently, you know, uh, crippling alcoholic uh, as well. Oh, I did not know that. Yes. Uh, when you have uh, drinking parties with your friends, and uh, the loser of the uh, uh, the loser of the drinking contest is the one who dies of alcohol poisoning, that's hardcore alcoholism. I would think so. Yeah. Uh, if I understand correctly, there's uh, at least one historian who uh, uses that as sort of a unifying theme to explain uh, the uh, some of the more unusual behaviors that uh, Alexander engages in. So anyway, yes, plenty of uh, plenty of precedent that we can uh, point to to say that Socrates is onto something here. That the 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 tyrannical character will never be happy in the position of a tyrant. Okay, and I don't I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on how we define happy. I, I mean, I suppose I that of all the of all the things that I read in book nine, this was the one that I pushed back the most on, at least on my in my gut, but I didn't quite have the either the vocabulary or the psychology behind it. I understand the idea of being paranoid, of being driven to misery, things like that, of um, having achieved the station of always being afraid of losing it. But are they actually miserable? I mean, there are some men, to borrow a phrase from a famous movie, there are some men who just like to watch the world burn. Well, um, I mean, I, I would so, guess so that. I, so, I mean, I'm so, I would guess that Socrates' approach to that uh, might be to say that uh, you might be catching this person partway through the degeneration, and they have not achieved full misery quite yet. Okay. Um, but if we, you know, if we uh, define happiness in terms of being cheerful, uh, we still have uh, Socrates' argument that being in this precarious position uh, where you have to see, where you, where you end up seeing plots everywhere and uh, you're not free to go around without your bodyguard uh, because, you know, sooner or later that's stuff's gonna, something's going to happen, so you're always on the lookout, um, which, by the way, is what happened to Alexander the Great's father, Philip II. He decided he could... He was going to show yeah. people that he didn't need a bodyguard. Mm-hmm. Here he goes. Um, yeah, even, <coughs> even my ninth graders, when I start reaching that section history like we see where this is going like yep yep so yeah um if if we're taking a hedonic definition of happiness uh i mean socrates is going to say that putting yourself in the position of a tyrant surrounded by uh people who are either uh toadies or schemers or both um is a recipe for you know unhappiness Uh, i would say regardless of how much enjoyment someone might get uh, from uh, you know exerting one's will and uh, watching one's enemies get punished and all that uh, fun stuff. 
but if we take a, a eudaimonic definition of happiness, if we're defining happiness as a uh, as fulfillment, as a life lived well, doing excellency excellently what humans do, uh, then uh, the tyrant would not uh, be a happy person. Uh, again, going from from Socrates' argument, because uh, the tyrant, you know, if we track this uh, developmental trajectory, uh, the tyrant gets to this place uh, through a continuous indulgence of uh, the lower natures and then the the animal desires. And part of uh, part of Socrates' insight here is that uh, the, the is the power of uh, formation in one's habits. So it's like the more you feed this part of your soul, the stronger that part of your soul becomes. So a lifetime of self-indulgence renders this lower nature so powerful that you have no choice but to obey it. So this is someone who doesn't have the capacity to engage in the type of higher uh, level activities and higher level pleasures and properly fulfill human functions uh, the way that uh, when Socrates' you know, philosophical person uh, would do. Okay. So uh, this might be a weird analogy, but is this similar to the devolution of the boys on Pleasure Island in Pinocchio? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I could go with that. Okay. Yep. Drawing from your, uh, from your Disney, um, you know, side job. Which, uh, which, well, anyone that knows me would be shocked that I even brought <laughs> up that reference because I have seen probably less than a handful of Disney movies. Okay. Or at least animated ones. Oh, the animated. Okay. So, uh, yes. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Uh, the you know, Pleasure Island. The uh, the boys indulge in pretty much every uh, lower nature that, I don't know, you know, eight-year-old boys or however they old, uh, however old they are can do, and uh, they end up turning into animals uh, and end up being literally enslaved because now they're uh, donkeys, they're beasts of burden, and they're going to go off and work in the mines. I also found it uh, interesting as he's d- talking about the misery of the tyrant and the difference between the tyrannical man and the philosopher king. He actually tries to quantify their happiness. I love this section. He he goes through a whole series of steps to arrive at the number 729, that the (laughs) philosopher is 729 times more happy or has lived a life that is 729 times better than that of the tyrannical man. And it just put me in mind of an XKCD comic. Perfect. But I wasn't quite sure what to make of the actual number. Well, uh, I mean, as it, we see if, in if the text. If we're to make anything. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's obvious to a mathematician anyway. Well, so, I yeah. am not a mathematician. <laughs> Neither am I, but uh, I do like a good XKCD reference. And, uh, yes, so we've uh, got this section in which... Um, so the, the, the pleasure that the... Uh, the let's see. Uh, the the pleasure the distance from the tyrant's pleasure to true pleasure is uh, three and then times three because we've got three three types of pleasure and three levels of uh, three levels of reality three levels of uh, you know psychological functioning so that gives us three times three uh, right. and then we square it and cube it uh, because of course we do. Mm-hmm. Because why not? Yes. So, 
That's right. So the Philosopher King is 729 times happier than the tyrant. And not a single person in this uh, section of Book 9 um, calls the math into question. No, the, like the most that they come to is, at least in my translation, one of them calls it a prodigious calculation. There we go. And, that, and that's about as far as any kind of critique goes. They just seem to <laughs> accept it and move on. Yeah, mine's a bit, my translation, so I'm using uh, the uh, Desmond Lee translation. Mine's a bit more positive. He calls it a terrific calculation. That is so, a bit more positive. It is. Uh, hopefully, terrific, hopefully in the good way and not in the sense of terror-inducing. I, I would hope so, yes. Although math students might tend to disagree. Uh, on the other hand, if we show this to the math students, we might show them how they can use math to make other people agree with them because uh, who's going to question these calculations? Just information overload. There we go. Um, that, that's just with science. I know. Yeah. Along with what we've been talking about, one other aspect of the nature of the tyrant that I don't think that we've touched on is the fact that Socrates points out that there is some of the tyrannical man in all of us. Um, I think he puts it, at least in my translation, there is some terrible, savage, and lawless form of desires in every man, which circles around back. Obviously, Socrates, Plato, the Republic, is not Christian, and yet we find that Christian principle if we are to go with total human depravity. You know, every one of us is capable of great evil. Yes. Uh, this also um, gives us, you know, possible connections to Sigmund Freud and a um, num number of other uh, psychologists. Uh, yeah, the, the I'm, idea... I'm useless on psychology after 1910. There, well, okay. Uh, Sorry. I don't know. Well, okay, if, if we record another episode, I'll see if I can uh, get a good William James... Uh, quote for you then. Okay, my, my my psychology pretty much ends with Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. Ah, there we go. So yeah, but the idea that human nature uh, contains dangerous animalistic urges has a long and venerable tradition. Um, uh, so if we're doing pre nineteen ten psychology, I might say Thomas Hobbes. Okay. Uh, and this idea of, you know, inherent animalistic urges, uh, I think, is generally supported by anyone who has children. Or students. Yes. <laughs> I, I do not have children, but I have many students that I think could fit this category over the years. Yeah. Not currently. Yeah, it's uh, one of the... One of the weird things about my career is that uh, I do a lot of my work in what's called the positive psychology movement, which okay. is about happiness and virtue and psychological strengths. Uh, and it's, it's a very optimistic uh, approach to psychology, but uh, I approach it from a basic anthropological pessimism. Uh, the, uh, there's quite a lot about humans that is ugly and dark and should be uh, opposed so yes I uh, if uh, if any of our listeners have spent any amount of time in the virtue ethics uh, literature uh, you can count me among the ones who say that the virtues are corrective in nature okay so what what would happen I mean obviously we would say if the tyrant is not opposed then you'll get tyrants but 
is there anything in society today, and I know the answer to the question, this is a rhetorical question, is there anything in society that would give rise to a tyrant today? Oh, absolutely. I think we have to answer yes. I I think we absolutely do. I mean, if uh, I'm going to go ahead and drop the H-bomb on people, uh, Hitler was elected. uh So, yeah, I mean, the fact that we live in uh, modern democratic uh, societies uh, and consider ourselves to be, you know, fairly enlightened, uh, that doesn't make us immune from, uh, you know, electing demagogues. People who uh, you know, are really motivated only by themselves and their own egos, but who um, you know tell us what we want to hear and promise to uh, uh, you know give us what we want, and you know if we will just give them the power. Right. Which, again, trying to, at least for my own personal benefit, draw a somewhat neutral line. That's the discussion that we're having here in the United States right now. To, to some degree you know um, yeah in in the last four weeks i don't know you know we, i try i try not to be too political you know it's one of those holdovers from from the classroom that teaching goes teaching many students from many different backgrounds and many different families i try to present both sides of everything so it's also it means that when i'm given an opportunity to give my opinion often i won't but um <laughs> In the last four weeks, at least paying attention to the arguments being made in the Senate, we were, in theory, facing a choice between an unfettered executive and one that could be checked by Congress. Now, whether you want to agree with those claims is a different matter entirely. Uh, I have a similar disposition to you in that I try to keep my uh, my own uh, political positions out of the classroom. Uh, I, when I was a student, I hated when professors did that, and so I swore I'd never be that guy. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know if a discussion of the Republic would be the right time for me to uh, launch into an extended tirade uh, about my personal opinions about the current political situation. But I will go so far as to agree with you and say the discussion exists. Right. Well, did you have any questions on your end? I seem to have been monopolizing at least that half of the conversation. Was there anything you wanted to talk about? Uh, well, you know, not not surprisingly, I go. I'm going psychological with this. Um, oh, that's fine. Play to your strengths. Playing to my strengths. Love it. There we go. Well, one of the things that I really liked and I uh, thought maybe we could take a couple of minutes to talk about this is. Um, uh, Socrates' presentation of human nature. I mean, the idea that uh, whether we're saying the soul, the mind, the personality, uh, whichever term we're using in whatever historical era, the idea that uh, the mind has parts, and these different parts have different functions, and these different parts have different agendas, and proper human functioning involves getting all of these parts to operate within their own domains in the right way, in you know, a certain amount of harmony. This is something that comes through very strongly in Book Nine. Uh, so, yeah, uh, in in this section, uh, Socrates sort of you know draws a lot of a lot of connections. So we've he he says that we have uh, three elements to the mind, and one of the ways that he uh, 
uh, he uh, presents this is to give us the mental image of human nature as a composite beast, uh, like a chimera or something like that. Uh, and so one part of us, uh, the, the higher part of us, is a human part. He says so it's like, a, it's like we're, we're shoving these creatures together, and part of it is a man. And the man is the part that seeks understanding and truth, and the virtue of this part of us is wisdom. Um, so then, but then we have, uh, so we've got a man, and we've also got a lion, and we need to, we need to watch out for the lion. The lion is good. Lion is not necessarily bad. But, uh, the lion is the spirited uh, aspect of us. Uh, I'm not too much up on my Greek. I don't, I'm assuming that he's using thumos uh, in connection with this, but um, so yeah, it's, it's the, been like almost 18 years since I had to use any Greek. There we go. Um, so in, in our mutual incompetence at Greek, well, just slide on past that one. But anyway, so mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that is the seat of ambition, and uh, that's the part that desires glory. Um, and the, the virtue of this uh, part would be courage. And then we've got this very interesting third part representing our base animalistic nature. And uh, essentially what we have is a Lovecraftian Shoggoth uh, for this this animal self. Yes. Uh, uh, he, uh, Socrates describes it as uh, one of these composite beasts in the old myths, Chimera and Scylla and Cerebrus. Cerberus. There we go. Cerberus and the rest, which combine more than one creature in one. Uh, so a very complicated, many-headed sort of beast with heads of wild and tame animals all around it, which it can produce and change at will. So it's this shape-shifting, um, multi-animal uh, sort of a thing. Now that I really like your description better. Yes, beware the inner Shoggoth. M- mine just says it can change them and make all of them grow from itself, which made made it seem more like a hydra than anything else. There we go. But but I I I appreciate the shape-shifting even so, more. Yeah. So so that is the seat of desire. Uh, and motivated by pleasure and gain. And uh, so Plato, or, or Socrates, the Republic, uh, gives us uh, a, a picture of mental health out of this and proper psychological hmm. functioning. So proper psychological functioning comes from these parts of us existing in the proper proportions of strength and, uh, and so certain certain amount of harmony. So clearly, uh, we need the higher part to be the one in charge. So uh, we want the uh, the man uh, of this composite creature uh, to be uh, the one who is the strongest, uh, looking after the many-headed beast. Uh, Socrates says, like a farmer. Nursing and cultivating its tamer elements and preventing the wild ones growing. Uh, so we're not trying to kill the Shoggoth within, uh, but we're trying to properly cultivate it uh, so that our desire uh, can you know, uh, exist and function in proper proportion and in healthy directions. Uh, and then we, uh, the, we make an ally of the lion. 
uh, and says, so it makes an ally of the lion and looks after the common interests of all by reconciling them with each other and with himself. So inner balance and harmony is what we want to go to. Now, I probably shouldn't call it balance. That, that might be a mistaken misstatement because it is hierarchy. Clear, it's not like we have three equal uh, sides here. Clearly one of these is in charge. And it should right. be the highest part that's in charge. So when we are pursuing wisdom and truth and our rational capacities are the, the, the part of us that is you know leading our lives, then we're going to end up, uh, I guess, 729 times happier. And uh, all you know, one of the interesting things is that uh, we don't necessarily lose out on the things that the lower parts want. Uh, we can still get glory. Glory's not right. as important as wisdom and truth, but um, I mean, uh, assuming that one lives in a community where the you know, wise person can be honored, um, you can get glory, and uh, the 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 many-headed monster within that uh, wants gain and pleasure, uh, you can you know secure a decent living for yourself. Uh, so you know it's just you do it in proportion. So you're not going to starve yourself to death. The many-headed monster wants food. You're going to eat food, but it will be the right kind of food uh, at the right amounts uh, at the right time. Uh, so keeping everything you know, at, at, a, at a proper healthy level. All this talk of, of the lion makes me think of a totally different lion, and that would be um, Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I kept thinking as you were talking, and I was listening to you, but I was thinking, you know, he's not a tame lion. There's no, there's no real way to tame the lion or the chimera within us. It's a perpetual, it's a perpetual work. Yeah, I do think it's interesting and, that, he's, that uh, Socrates said that uh, he makes an ally of the lion. Right, and alliances need to be upheld. You know, it's not a one-and-done kind of deal. Right. But I think, I, think, I think even Socrates or Plato, whoever, comes comes back to this i'm not sure if it's before or after this but he proposes with the education of a philosopher king he proposes intermediate or that's not the right word but he proposes tests at various stages to check on how the development of the philosopher is coming and if he's found to be lacking at any point he should be kicked off that track right uh, and yes, so the you know the lion is the part that wants to go out and be a warrior, uh, and so part of this uh, education of uh, of the philosopher king uh, will be uh, in you know a certain amount of gymnastics. There will be a certain amount of physical education. Mm-hmm. You know, but again, not out of proportion though. Uh, it will be whatever there is uh, for. Let me see if I can find the uh, the section. Um, you know, physical. So, uh, pursuing, uh, you know, pursuing physical condition. Uh, so, here we go. Uh, so, health, strength, and health, and good looks will mean nothing to him unless they conduce to self-control, and we will always find him attuning his body to match the harmony of his mind and character. So. Again, you know, everything in its right proportion. So there will be a certain amount of, you know, physical pleasure at the lowest level. There will be a certain amount of, uh, you know, know, getting exercise and building your muscles and all that sort of stuff. Uh, You know, 
not going overboard with it, but no. sufficient for proper harmony. And at least for his purposes, definitely not too artsy. He is not a fan of the arts. Yeah, especially poets. Poets are the worst. Which I'm not quite sure why. I mean, I don't want to steal the thunder from anyone coming after us. I think they go further into poets in a future book. But I, I just I don't get I don't get his hatred for the poets because, to me, poetry is is philosophy. Uh, well, back in book two, uh, we talked a little bit about that. And his big beef with the poets is that they keep lying about the gods. Um, you know, they, they tell stories about all the misdeeds, you know, Zeus turning into into things to do things with people producing demigods and you know murders and um you know uh the factions within gods and all that stuff that of course we know gods never do because gods are good and so all the poets who talk about the misdeeds of gods um that just shows uh what a bunch of poops uh the poets are somewhat ironic considering socrates end. yeah which is why we need uh, strong state censorship to make sure yes. that people only say the correct things about the gods. Uh, and uh, especially we don't let uh, any kids uh, near poetry. Or see dramatic plays. Because, you know, dramatists are just as bad as poets. You must be 18 years of age or older to read this rhyming couplet. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where my mind is right now. This Sophoclean tragedy is rated M for mature. I know that we... It's often easy to draw parallels to things, and I'm not trying to say that Plato was a Christian in any sense of the, of the word. But is his claim that happiness comes from understanding the form of the good similar, not the same, but similar to the Christian idea that happiness comes from knowing God, who we would say is the ultimate good? There are some connections, um, and certainly we have a tradition within Christian thought of the contemplation of God as the highest good. Um, there are going to be some big differences, though. I mean, one of the things about Plato is uh, Plato is uh, famously derogatory toward physical existence. Uh, the, the fact that we have these lower natures and, our, and physicality and all that stuff is, is really a shame according to him. And we, we don't see this in Book 9, uh, but uh, Socrates elsewhere talks about how, uh, you know, he believes in the pre-existence of the soul. So we are, our, our souls used to be great. I mean, you know, they were wonderful. They were, you know, you know wandering around, uh, chasing whatever souls chase in the celestial realms, exposed to uh, pure truth and beauty and goodness, but they, I don't know, tripped on something or something like that and fell to earth and unfortunately got born in this, uh, you know, silly meat prison that uh, our souls have. and It's going to be great. Finally, someday we're going to die. It'll be wonderful. Our uh, souls will be released from the meat prison and we'll go back up to the celestial realms. That'll be good. That'll be fine. Uh, when we put too much of that in connection with uh, Christianity, we get Gnosticism. Right. And that's, that's a heresy. We don't want to go there. We don't want to do that. Uh, that leads to some very weird places. Yes, it uh, does. When we take a look at uh, descriptions of happiness in the Bible, uh, and there there was a book that came out uh, 2012, if I remember correctly, on uh, the Bible and happiness. And uh, one of the things that we see when we look at scriptural references to happiness and to the good life, uh, so first off, Scripture affirms the goodness of creation. 
and specifically the physical creation. So here's going to be one of our right. big divergences from Plato. Um, we live, you know, the fact that we are physical creatures is good, and the physical world is good. Uh, descriptions of the good life in the Bible uh, include, uh, you know, uh, good family, good, you know, birth to good parents, uh, having good mm-hmm. children, many friends, um, wealth. I mean, you know, it it is part of the, you know, in the Old Testament, the definite, you know, the description of what it is to have lived a good life uh, usually involves, uh, you know, lots of sheep and camels. Right. Uh, you've got you've got enough livestock. I mean. You know, clearly this stuff can go out of proportion uh, when the love of wealth becomes the motivating factor. But when you look at a human, a good human life, uh, we are at least, that, that person is at least comfortably well off. Uh, lots of food and drink, uh, li- happy old age, living in a peaceful and just community. So there's a whole lot of uh, earthly uh, aspects to the Bible's descriptions of happiness. And so happiness coming from knowing God is certainly going to be true, but an enjoyment of what God has made is also uh, a key component. There's also Which the fact Socrates would disagree with. Correct? He would, yes. I mean, would, and, and then we could you know extend this further to eschatology because um, heaven is not our goal. Uh, are some sort of disembodied state that you see in the cartoons where we float around on clouds. That's not where we're going. Where we're going is new creation, new heaven and new earth. Mm -hmm. So physicality is going to exist in the eschaton. Uh, It will just finally, it will be a redeemed uh, physicality. Right. The the Christian end is not a nihilistic one. Right. Right. It's not not disembodied. We will be fully embodied. Our hope is in resurrection. Yeah. Um. Spoiler alert. Pause <laughs> your pause your uh, pause the podcast if you have not yet seen the finale of The Good Place. And I pause for you to pause it. Okay. But that's ex- that's exactly what what the ending of that show was that they had the physicality but even in the philosophy of the showrunners uh physicality was not good and they had each of their characters choose to become nothing in the end okay i haven't seen the end of the good place so i'm going to pretend i didn't hear that oh i wish you'd interrupted me huh what i wasn't listening okay i didn't hear anything you didn't say anything what huh we were talking okay. about something. Never mind. Do, 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 do. The last okay, few minutes have not happened. Moving right. on. Um, but no, the Christian end is not a nihilistic one, and I'm not even quite sure where that idea that heaven is our goal came from. When if when, you know, the rest of it is clearly there in the Bible that Christ will remake the he- the heavens and the earth, not not just wipe them away, but bring back the perfection that was there. Uh, I mean, given the, you know, centuries of dialogue that has existed between Christian thinkers and uh, the, you know, the, the ancient scholars, I'm going right. to, I'm going to guess it comes from, you know, too many Christians reading Plato. 
which should mm. not be taken by our listeners as a reason to not read Plato. Again, all things in balance and Reading in correct Pl- proportion. That's right. Plato is good. And, Just, and we don't, with discernment. Yes, we don't have to always agree with Plato. And boy, don't we. Often. Except for the Shoggoth part. That's totally true. Oh, yeah. I think so. I, I'm still pushing back on his on his definition of um, the tyrannical man being unable to be truly happy. I think that if a person is twisted enough, they can actually think that they're happy, even if they're, quote, not. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but I think I'd be more on uh, Socrates' side here by, and say that someone that twisted would be, by definition, not happy. True. I suppose at that point we're also verging on, on mental insanity, most likely. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah Socrates' uh, definition even includes, uh, includes madness. Yes, so, it yeah. does. And I think we brought up paranoia before. We did, yes. So, so living a tyrannical life is corrosive to proper psychological functioning. Well, it's not just corrosive to the person; it's corrosive to the city. And you might, and we might think, well, duh. I mean, he's the ruler of the city, but <laughs> yeah, but it is it is corrosive to the city in the in the sense that even those that are governing or ruling are ones that are going along with his with his machinations. That's right. Well, I mean, which is a big part of. Uh, why Socrates is connecting uh, the character of the person and the character of the community. Uh, Because in the same way that uh, the tyrannical soul is in a state of miserable enslavement to the lower nature, uh, those who live in a tyrannical society are going to be trapped in a state of miserable enslavement to the tyrant. Right. Which is... Yeah, and the citizens of... uh, uh, the Republic living under the Philosopher King are going to be the happiest of all subjects. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yep. Is that too no. sarcastic? <laughs> no. I, I, I am in agreement. I'm, I'm guessing by your tone that you don't think that would be the case. And I, I am enough well, of a modern figure that I would agree with you that uh, uh, living in a, a state with that little freedom as long as it's governed by wise people, I still don't know if I would like that. I also, you know, going back to this, the my, my basic anthropological pessimism, I don't think we can train philosopher kings right. to not be tyrants. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's part of my disagreement with Plato. Well, I, I, was, I was going to say, I can, I can agree with the faults that he's pointing out in the other forms of government or the faults that he's pointing out in the nature of man while disagreeing with his solutions. Oh yeah. And and I think that's where that's where it comes down to it's that idea that under under his government like everyone should be happy because this is the best form of government and it's the best form of government because I came up with it is essentially <laughs> what it comes down to. And there's that a certain freedom of choice that's taken away. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Socrates' idea poetry—that's right. Socrates' idea of a good society is a place for everyone and everyone in their place. Freedom does not really enter into it. Yes, you have the freedom to do as you are told. Right, which of course you would because you are being uh, governed by the best of all possible rulers. And so anyone then, who would disagree would uh, 
uh, clearly be mentally dysfunctional anyway. So then as a, I know that this is getting a little far afield from book nine, but then <laughs> is there an actual difference between, you know, looking at it from our standpoint, is there a real difference between the philosopher king and the tyrant? And <laughs> that, because, I mean, how is the philosopher king not a tyrant himself? Well, okay. It's, I think it's all going to depend on how much we agree with uh, Socrates' description of this situation. As True. Socrates describes it, and yes, again, we are getting uh, a little far afield from Book 9. He discusses this in other uh, parts of the Republic. Uh, a philosopher king is someone who will have endured decades of strenuous training Right. To become a truly virtuous person, and the desire for material gain will not be a part of this person's existence. I mean, the the, the philosopher kings don't even own property; uh, they don't get paid, and so that that that's not a consideration. And the philosopher kings uh, do not get glory. Uh, like the the warrior or the guardian well, class does, they, they don't demand glory. But yeah, but that's the thing. So um, we're assuming that Plato's or Socrates, the Republic's uh, education uh, system, will sufficiently train people in virtue to the point that uh, they will not want to use their positions uh, to uh, get material gain or personal uh, aggrandizement. And that would be the part, that'd be one of the big ways in which I would disagree with Socrates. And you know, part of it is coming at this from a, a Christian perspective. Uh, the sinful nature is not something that will be eliminated on this side of the eschaton. So it doesn't matter how much education or training in virtue someone has. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea to give anyone absolute power. Nope. Because that sinful nature is still going to be there. And we will, you know, maybe we won't see it the same day that we give the person absolute power, but give it a little time. Right. And the the philosopher king will become a tyrant. Um, if I, I mean, if I'm really spinning scenarios here and writing my sci-fi dystopia of what the Republic would look like, uh, I mean... I get I'm thinking it would actually end up being worse because the tyrant, uh, if we accept Socrates's psychological description, would be so uh, psychologically incompetent and enslaved to the lower passions that he's actually somewhat limited in what he can do. But a philosopher tyrant uh, would, probably be very well trained in coming up with things like self-justifying rationalizations for why whatever the act, uh, whatever decisions this person makes are in fact the wisest most virtuous and in the best interest of everyone right so it would actually end up being worse i'm, I'm trying to uh, i'm probably going to butcher the quote but cs lewis talks about tyrants and um, he said that uh, the and this is in one of his essays. He says the, uh, the, the absolute worst kind of tyrant to live under would be someone who uh, thinks that he's ruling for your own good. Mm -hmm. Because a selfish tyrant, at least at some point, uh, his desire will be sated. Um, 
but the the one who oppresses you uh, for your you know in quotes for your own good does so with the approval of a clear conscience and knows no limitation. So yeah, I think uh, now I think I'm in safe territory to say that Lewis probably is quite familiar with Plato. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. Yes. So I don't I don't know if he was specifically thinking Plato, but I'm I, I'm seeing connections there. So yeah, um, I there's there is a good amount in the Republic that I agree with and that I like. Uh, certain parts of this hypothetical ideal society are actually a little bit attractive. I mean, the idea of getting wealth out of politics, I like that idea. That sounds pretty good. Um, and not being ruled by people who are uh, completely absorbed with their own glory, that also sounds like a really good idea. But there's a bunch of other parts of the of the Republic that I am not going to vote for. Right. Including the fact that I won't get to vote in the Republic. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm of mixed feelings about that. I'm not quite sure. I mean, I'm, it sounds odd. I'm not sold on, I'm not sold on democracy and that sounds bad, but you know, any form of government taken to its extreme, it becomes evil. Oh yeah. So, I don't know. Um, I, I always was look... it Churchill. Hmm? I'm guessing it was Churchill. I don't know. Maybe you knew those know this quote. Is it was a Churchill who said, uh, "Democracy is the worst form of government ever, except for the others." Right. I think it's something like that. But yeah. I, as a Christian, I always think of the Apostle Paul when he told when he wrote his letters and he reminded us that we ought to obey the government insofar as we can obey the government. He was writing under Roman emperors. Right. So. You know, and as I often point out to my students, there's no civil government exactly set out in the Bible that says thou shalt have a democracy or or a parliamentary system or whatever whatever else you might have. Yeah, whatever we come up with, I mean, you, you can have better, relatively better systems and relatively worse systems, but, um, you know, utopia is not something that's going to happen until we get uh, through I was going to say until we get to effort. utopia on the great books list. Oh, there we go. Which I don't know if it's still on there or not, but at one point it was. I'm going to assume so. I've got one of those collections on my shelves and it's got utopia. Great. Well, as we approach the hour mark, I know it's a little bit shy of an hour, but are there any final Final thoughts or final questions or anything? Uh, well, one question that uh, uh, you had, uh, had you know, provided when you gave us show notes that uh, I thought was interesting, so maybe we could uh, wrap it up with this okay. one. Uh, you wanted to talk about uh, which of the three virtues of wisdom, courage, and wealth are current society values. Is there one that we ignore? Uh, what do you think about that? Believe it or not. I'm looking at my own notes and I don't see that. So hooray for hooray for old me. <laughs> you had it as point 10. I think that in my own personal opinion, I would come down on as to which one we have valued least would likely be courage only because we've substituted some form of or some different definition of courage than what Plato would have defined courage. Our version of courage is 
at least in America, would be doing something that I want you to do in the face of opposition, whether or not it is actually the right thing to do. If that makes sense. It, I'm thinking. Um, okay, I'll, I think that yeah, I'll, I think, I'll I think be, that makes I'll sense. Be a, I'll be a little bit. I guess I'm I'm not going to try to be partisan, but the instance that I was thinking of recently was in with uh, Senator Romney when he became the first Republican in history to vote against his own president in an impeachment trial. And on one side of the aisle, you had those saying, you know, he's shown great courage. He's shown a true, he's like proved himself a statesman, blah, 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 whatever. And on the right, you see, well, he was a political hack. He was opportunistic. The vote didn't mean anything because he knew it wouldn't have a, have a, have an impact on the overall outcome. So I think we've just devalued courage to the point where, you know, anything that goes against the grain or anything that goes against the norm becomes courage. Yeah, I could see what you're what you're talking about there with uh, the preference for, you know, whatever outcome we want becomes the determination for that. Especially since with the Romney thing, these are uh, in many cases precisely the same individuals who back in 2012 uh, were saying that uh, Romney uh, was a racist, sexist, uh, um, fascist uh, sociopath. Geopol- he, and he and th- geopolitically ignorant. That too. Until he voted uh, against Trump in the, uh, the impeachment right. trial, uh, then he becomes uh, principled and courageous and stuff like that. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, my first thought when I was reading uh, what this, you know, wisdom, courage, wealth. My first thought for uh, courage uh, is our uh, adulation of athletics. Yes. So if somebody who's you know got a ball does something incredibly courageous, you know, puts themselves on the line, risking injury. Um, we like that. Well, we hold these people up. We, 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 uh, we consider them heroes. Some people do. <laughs> I mean, I, I follow athletics. Well, okay, I follow a few athletics. I follow college basketball, Premier and Bundesliga uh, soccer, and Six Nations rugby. But... I watch them because I like to watch the game, but I'm under no illusions that these are just athletes that I'm watching. They're not my heroes. Right. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff about celebrity culture we could add into there. Because we've got the courage, but also the wealth. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely uh, one of the... I would think that wealth would be the one that we've become most accustomed to. In other words, I think that we ignore courage and we would promote wealth like if we're trying to rank these i think on our modern in modern society they would courage would kind of be the last one i could see that with wealth being the first there we go yeah okay i think i'm on board with your i might have uh with your higher with your ranking right so in terms of the things that society wants one would be wealth two wisdom three courage yes which I guess we could argue about what they mean by wisdom. We would. My first thought is uh, the prominent place that we have put science uh, in our culture. Oh, yes. I mean, we could, uh, I mean, we're 
<laughs> we could do a whole nother three hours if we wanted just on the question of what is wisdom, comparing modern approaches and ancient approaches and uh, all these sorts of things. Uh, but if wisdom includes you know, intellectual capacities and an understanding of the way the world is uh, and pursuit of truth, I, we have placed the scientist in that role. Which it then becomes its own religion. And then when we elevate this person, we have we have celebrity scientists. Yes, we do. And they don't always get things right either. Uh, I think we covered. I think that we've covered everything for today. And so we've and we're just over just over an hour, which is a nice, which is a nice length. And so. For uh, Charles Hackney and myself, Jay Eldred, we want to thank you for listening to the episode today and reading along with Plato or reading Plato along with us. We'd like to remind you that the core curriculum is part of the Christian Humanist Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. We thank you for listening and tune in for the next episode.